They didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize you were seeds. They open doors so others can walk through them. Your legacy is every life you have ever touched. I'm Stella Sagliari and this is Soul the Podcast. Welcome to Soul the Podcast, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is the second part of my conversation with Paula Salwan Daher, a Marxist feminist from the Lebanese diaspora, who is interested in feminist movement building, embodying transnational solidarity, rethinking love and relationships, poetry, writing, tattoos, books, watching her children grow, and the general witchery of life. As I said in the introduction to the first episode, um, yeah, this episode consists of two parts because I had so many questions. And Paula has so much knowledge to share, and she made sure that nothing was unsaid. And if you have not listened to the first part of our conversation, make sure you do. This is the second part. And in this part, we speak about writing as a political act, the importance of women writers, reproductive work, reproductive rights. We speak about motherhood, the beauty of motherhood, but also the challenges around it. We talk about Paula's salt and why she doesn't want to inspire anybody and to receive a book recommendation from her. Enjoy this part. And yes, as I said in my first part, Paula is fierce and loving and she's someone I truly admire. You're a writer. You've also published two books, also something that we didn't mention. Or you didn't mention. And you said writing is a political act. Mm-hmm. And I think somewhere I also read that your dream is to bring women together and to, to write. I don't know if, if I phrase it well, but I think I read that also somewhere. <laughs> that sounds like me. <laughs> yes. Can you elaborate on that? Because you are very, yeah, I think you're very good with words. So in the, in the speaking and in the writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think if I had, if I had it my way, I would just write fiction all the time. I mean, I say that, but then I'd probably be even more of a raging feminist on the side. But I, there's something about there's something about finding the right word for the right situation that I found profoundly satisfying. I think that I also I'm someone also who writes a lot about feelings, even in 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 my novel Oublia Alep that I that I wrote a long time ago about um, Aleppo, right? Yeah, I mean the the the, the Action is set in in Aleppo. I actually hate the title of of the book. Like I didn't, I didn't really. It was a battle with my editor at the time. But you know, uh, sorry to say, she won. And it's not really like a high paced thriller. You know, like it, it really is more of a of a novel that really speaks about feelings and the inner workings of two women and a man. And I think this is what interests me. I like one of my favorite author, actually, Lucia Echebarria. Uh, in one of her books, she says that every person carries within themselves a novel. And I think that's one of the truest words that I've ever read. I am fascinated by people and their stories, mm. and all the nuances and everything that is not being said. As much as like I, 
I cannot deal with the unsaid. It's something that I struggle with a lot. Uh, I here. Yeah, you know, like I, I yes. have a heart tattooed on my sleeve. Like everything I have is there, is there on my sleeve because I don't want, I don't want people to be left after an interaction with me wondering about what is it that I was thinking, what is it that I was feeling. I like to leave people clear about my intentions, feelings, whatever. I don't know if it's good or bad. I'm trying not to judge it. It's just the way that I am. And so it's something that I try and do with my characters. Whenever I'm writing something, I really go deep within their, their feelings that the reader actually can be in their head and minds and hearts. Um, because I think that's the only way that you really truly understand someone. And understanding someone a lot of the times means loving them or opening the, the door to be able to love them. And that's what words have done for me. They've given me the keys to explore people to explore myself and it's just like i if if i could i would just give all women laptop pens paper and ask them to just write their stories also because i feel that women's stories are just silenced so many times and another thing that we had done on hammam um at some point i think the four of us marwa rasha abir and i we had uh, several shows around reading uh, uh, um, male writers write about women. Oh my God. Like we would keep, we keep, we kept finding like gems about how men write women, how they write about us. Everything is about our breasts that are always perky and that are big or small, or whatever. And, and the way that they are able to please us sexually by the mere presence and existence of their penis. And, and it's just, and as a woman who exists in this world, you're like, no, no, my friend, you, you've got it all wrong. But also, why are we not making space for women to talk about women, about what we feel, about how, even how we feel about our breasts and our sexuality? Because women's sexuality is still seen as super taboo and it's still fought at every level. And the expressions of our sexuality are fought so hard um, and there's such immense backlash against our sexualities, our sexual and reproductive rights. And, and so I think I just, if I could, um, if I had that particular power, I would create as many platforms as I can online, offline, encounters, spaces, so that women just get to tell their stories. And not just women, like I think I think all marginalized groups Mm. One had do that doesn't get to have their voices featured in mainstream media and who's been silenced for decades and centuries. It's there's something that's extremely powerful. Words are extremely powerful. And it's it's how we use them. And then I also, you know, use words in a less political way, I guess. Um I just I just love the beauty that they can create, you know. Like you string words one after the other, it creates a thread that creates magic. Um, and I just like to witness that magic sometimes. Thank you. You, you really, I mean, you, you are doing what, is, what your tattoo represents. At least <laughs> this is what I feel. You're really trying to answer the questions and not leave anything unsaid. <laughs> yes, Paula, I really, really appreciate it. Do you want to talk about reproductive work or you want to talk first about motherhood? 
Oh, but <laughs> we will talk about both, but I don't know where you want to go now. Um, what do you prefer? I think I cannot. I don't think I can talk about one without talking about the other. Of course, we can also <laughs> t- take them both together. I mean, I, you are a mother. You're a mother of, of two daughters. You have two daughters. So, yeah, I would like to know what is motherhood for you? And I also want to talk about reproductive work. Could we do it together? You could start somewhere and then mm-hmm. take us uh, take us I, somewhere else. I always say that motherhood to me is the the biggest lesson in inadequacy and humility I've ever received. I think it's very it's it's very difficult. I don't want to start talking about motherhood by saying it's very difficult, but I think you know that was my initial reaction. And it's something that, unfortunately, we don't hear enough. And I'm very, very grateful for the parents and the mothers who come out and say it. Because when you're a young mother and you don't know, and it's the first child that you have, and you feel like you've been hit by a train, what you want to hear if you're struggling is it's okay if you're struggling and it's normal and you're not doing anything wrong. Because there's so much pressure to be the perfect mother to go back to the weight that you had before you you were pregnant and gave birth and people scrutinizing your body, people scrutinizing your parenting skills, people scrutinizing your child. And and when you're a woman, you're you're so used to that scrutiny, but when you become a mother, it becomes tenfold. It's, It's fucking unbearable. And I think that that just adds layer and layers. And then people are, are wondering why, women have postpartum depression. It's that scrutiny on an individual level, but I think that we also need to keep it in mind that on a structural level, there's actually very little that is done. It's interesting, right? Because abortion is still so stigmatized and looked down upon. And so we really want women to carry pregnancies, whether they like it or not. But when they do give birth and when they do carry these pregnancies, they're completely left alone in the dark. Like there's no social, meaningful social structures that enable a positive experience of motherhood. And it's something that I feel extremely strongly about because even me in Switzerland, I had 16 weeks off, which is nothing. It's like not even four months. Um, You carry a a pregnancy for nine months and then you give birth in a more or less traumatic way, depending on your luck um, and your access to health services. And then you have to recover from that and you have to get acquainted with a child and you have to start a rhythm where it's also super stressful because there are no social structures that are being put in place. So you stress over daycare and you stress over who's going to mind your child while you're away, busy going back to that job that capitalism absolutely needs you to go back to. And you have to do all of that with a smile, minus 10 kilos uh, with unstained clothes and looking like a million dollars. I'm sorry, this is not possible. This is not realistic. It's not even human. And if there are mothers to be that are listening to us, um, I just hope that they keep that in mind, that it's not them. Really, the issue is the system. And it's it's not looking like it will change anytime soon. And this is also why we need feminism. Um, that being said, apart from the political rant that you just received, um, no, sorry, (laughs) that was not a political rant. And I want to thank you for every single word that you said. I really want to thank you. Yes. It was Um, not a rant. It was to the point. I did. Motherhood has also brought me a lot of joy. You know, like when we were talking about grief, I, when I lost my mom, my eldest was two 
um, not even. And uh, and uh, and then a couple of months afterwards, I I got pregnant with my second one, and my second one actually carries her second name is my mother's name, and I really took her as my mom's last gift. So there is I also I also very much like that gift that motherhood brought me, which is giving me a place in the brother's circle and, um, and lineage of women. We are a family of women. I have a sister. My sister has also two daughters. We have cousins. We have aunts and all of them, very strong women and girls in their own rights. And motherhood has enabled me to kind of slot my, my position, my place within that amazing group of women of women. And I think, you know, more and more, I also realized how strong my own mother was. And I guess that what brings me a lot of joy and awe is to really look at my kids and discover them, you know, like they are developing their own personalities and it's something that is beautiful to witness and they are learning their own things and they're affirming themselves. And the only thing that I would, that I want for them is to have this kind of self-confidence, self-assertiveness that will enable them to do what it, do what they want in life. I know it's maybe not because they will be faced with, with oppressive structure. I don't wish that upon them, but realistically, I think they'll still be faced with patriarchal values and attitudes, but to have that inner core self-confidence that they seem to have now and sensitivity and kindness and I have to say that for now, I think that they do. They're very kind. They're very bright. They're hilarious. And of course, like I love them with everything that I have. So motherhood is also, it's also that, at least for me, it was incredibly difficult and politically charged and challenging. And it still is. There's also a lot of love there, a kind of love that I hadn't experienced until I became a mother, which is the love that exists between the mother and, and her child. and. It teaches you so much. I feel one of the reasons what I feel inadequate a lot of the times is that it's the sheer responsibility, you know, like you you give birth to these to these little souls and and then you realize that you are responsible for them. It is your duty. And it's not a question that you have to protect them because they don't have agency, because they do, but that agency is something that is built over the years. And it is your responsibility to provide a safe environment for them to express and experiment and throw tantrums and have their feelings and have their big emotions. And you're also human and you're not a saint in human form. And so when you're tired and you're not able to provide that space for them, then what what happens? Um, You know, you lose your patience and then you feel bad about it. And so this this is the kind of the mechanism that you have to go through that it, it is is tiring it's draining it's wonderful to see them grow but also you know the 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 treasures of patience and own kindness for yourself and for them that you have to harness sometimes you just cannot find that particular strength strength within you and so it's also why i feel that we need communities which we might not necessarily have and I really do believe, I, I hate that word. Like I hate that it takes a village bullshit. I don't know why I do, 
Um, but I, I don't I like think it. because it's so mainstream. You find yeah, it everywhere in you kind find of it. quote books or yeah, African yeah. wisdom. You buy exactly. It's and always there, but it's true. It's true. Like it's true, but I, I prefer to talk about collectivization of reproductive labor. You know, it, it's it's very much less sexy than you need the village. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but like The Marxist in me is begging to exchange the village for actual social and economic policies. That yes, because the village is still like, I mean, of course, the community is important, but it's still kind of lays on the individual. Exactly. And the state or the system can just sit there and. Oh, you know, she has her village. Yeah, actually, exactly. You know, collectivize, they care, like collectivize uh, 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 minding the kids, increase places in daycare, make daycare affordable. It act upon like access to food and health and housing, make it so people can actually focus on raising children, focus on living, you know, all of the life-making activities that capitalism has outsourced to women, you know, to doing that reproductive labor is so deeply gendered and it's so deeply linked to class as well, because like affluent white women do not do it anymore. They just outsource it to uh, domestic workers who are exploited and who are underpaid and who are, you know, deprived of their own families because they have to make a living. And this isn't feminism by any stretch of the imagination. It's not You can become a CEO because your success relies upon the, the slave work of another a woman of color. So this is why I also feel like you need to have like public policies that deal with, you know, ensuring that housing and health and uh, uh, childcare are taken care of. Um, and then also collectivizing I'm sorry, I don't think that's the right term, but you know, like collective. No, no, I understand. I hope everybody Reprodu does. I mean, reproductive. Collective. Yeah, collectivization of reproductive labor basically is also like common laundries, um, uh, common kitchens. And uh, there's a, 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 an amazing author called Sophie Lewis, and she wrote a book called, among other things, she wrote a book called uh, Full Surrogacy Now. Oh, yeah, I have the book, but I haven't yeah. read it yet. And yes. it, it, it really is like a manifesto to, first of all, recognize reproductive labor, recognize how gendered it is. She also talks about, you know, the, the surrogacy as, you know, being the ultimate form of outsourcing of reproductive labor. And, and it's something that I've worked on, you know, and I, I've actually had like an inner path on surrogacy. The more I worked on it, the more I saw that actual public policies did not address the issue the way that they should. And also, like, she also wants to deconstruct the family, the nuclear, bourgeois, patriarchal, yeah. heteronormative form of family formation that we have inherited because it is no longer relevant. That, you know, capitalism really needs the family as a basic unit of consumption. And it really needs ideology to sugarcoat that simple fact with the kind of sacrosanct, uh, essential nature of the family. So you can really see how conservative ideologies and religion work hand in hand with capitalism to make sure that this quite oppressive actually entity and 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 way of addressing relationships and the family work together to kind of keep women as second class citizens. And this is something that she really 
challenges and and really advocate for kind of um, an explosion of that nucleus so that we start considering families as, as communities of care based on like relationship ties and love rather than on obligation and socioeconomic consideration. Yes, I was listening to a lecture once. Um, Layal Fatouni, you know her also. Yeah, I do. Um, she's a lecturer at Utrecht University. And, and she was using, I think the lecture was about this term radical kinship, breaking yeah. this idea of family is just connected by blood or is the husband, the mother and the kids. And by breaking this and, and entering into this radical kinship, you widen the community and you widen your support system mm-hmm. and you go against capitalism. And also this idea that that's what I would add. You also change this idea of love, like yeah. platonic love, community love, the love for your friends, not just the love for your husband mm-hmm. or your kids and, and this heterosexual idea of family, right? And how powerful this is by widening those concepts. I'm, I mean, platonic love is like my favorite thing in the world. <laughs> I just, I, I'm, I'm so against that idea that there's a hierarchy in relationships yes. and in love and that, that your romantic partner, you know, should come first and everything else. And the, your friends are just kind of an afterthought and, and, or your nuclear family should come first and everything else should come afterwards. I feel that each and every relationship that you have this, I mean, at different levels, of course, because you cannot be super close to everyone, but there's this, this recognition. I feel that we owe to queer movements, actually, that love is multiple and complex and it can exist between people outside of marriage and it should be nurtured and it should be honored because the, the, you know, like, When there is this spark, you know, and this vibration between two people, this vibration of love, any type of love, platonic, romantic, sexual, whatever, this is something that it, that, that is the sacredness and that is what should be honored. And love doesn't really care for external appearances, I find. It doesn't really care if, uh, you know, about, about marriages and engagements and things like that. True love actually doesn't actually give a shit. Um, and it's, it's for me, it really like motherhood is, is intimately linked of course, with the concept of family and, and then of course, automatically linked with the concept of, of love and family formation and kinship and all of that. And the beauty of surrogacy is that it, it comes as kind of a bomb and how we usually understand kinship. That's what also Sophia says. It's just, you know, when you carry a pregnancy for someone else, that, that, give specific roles that societies are not used to attribute to, to, to people in this particular context. Um, and I really do believe that this is what we need. And when we say that we want to destroy the family, um, it makes conservatives very, very uncomfortable. Yes. Um, I think many people, when they hear it, they, they think, what, yeah. what does she mean? Not just conservative. Well, ex- ex- exactly. It's true. It's, it's kind of a violent statement. But then when you explain that what you want to expand is love and not obligation, that's where it changes the, the conversation. And so it's obviously all of that, you know, surrogacy is an issue of reproductive rights and, you know, reproductive labor as well. And my whole 
the last the better part of the last eight years have been devoted to working on reproductive rights. And it's something that I as much as I am a mother, you know, like it I also had abortions and I cannot imagine a situation where I wouldn't have been able to make these choices. I am incredibly fortunate that I was able to form my family the way that I wanted to form it and that I was able to decide for myself the number and the spacing of my children, which lies at the core of reproductive rights. Um, Because I live in a country where abortion is not... Uh, is not criminalized. A, yeah, that is not criminalized and that is available uh, with no restriction as to reason up until a certain time, of course. But I was able to have quite fairly stress-free, I would say, uh, procedure. And yeah, and, and we were talking about feminist solidarity. I will not rest until every woman in the world has the same right because it shouldn't be upon luck and wherever you live and by accident you live in a country where it's decriminalized and you're lucky and by by sheer randomness you exist in a country where you can go to jail for just wanting to have sovereignty over your own body um and having certain services denied just because you're a woman um or someone who is able to get pregnant and carry a pregnancy yeah a birthing person and a birthing person yeah. Thank you, Paula. I want you to share a book with us that had an impact on you and that you wish everyone would have read. And I know it's a difficult question because I always get this reaction and I have to agree myself. I got this question also in a few of my podcasts. But one book that you feel, I want people to read it. The first book that comes to mind, and I'm sorry, is The Communist Manifesto. Okay. Why? <laughs> I don't know. It's the first one that came to mind. I read it when I was very young. I think I read it when I was a teenager and something just went click. And it's just that Marx thought, you know, just I I understood what he meant. And I just loved the message, the underlying message of solidarity, you know, that workers of the world unite. I don't know. It's very simple, but it just really resonated with me even though at the time I wasn't a worker um, yet but it just gave way to for me it opened the door to understanding the world differently it enabled me to picture a world where not everything was around the individual and not everything was around an individualistic that maybe I perceived at the time as being super selfish way of seeing the world that is based on competition and it's not a world that I that I want like I will actually continue to try and do and change it because competition is what is killing us all and it's one of the fiercest value that capitalism holds dear so there there's a dichotomy like I don't think that we are meant to be in competition with one another I deeply believe that we are meant to be in collaboration with one another and that we can actually build greater and better things for everyone. And I don't think that there's like a definite type, like resources for all of us. And, and all of these thoughts that I had, I felt that Marx in the, and Engels and the Communist Manifesto, you, you know, synthesizes and, and gave a roadmap actually to change it. And so I think, and I also think that 
a lot of people actually use Marxist concepts and have a Marxist outlook on economic situations, but they don't realize it. And if you point that point this to them, they're like, no, never. <laughs> yes. So the same way we had to reclaim feminism, <clears throat> which for a while was a dirty word that you know women didn't really want to reclaim until Beyonce reclaimed it. You know, like they were like, no, 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 I'm not a feminist. I believe in gender equality, and I think that this is very wrong. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. but they, they didn't want to to claim themselves as feminism because actually capitalism and patriarchy had sullied the word. The word. I feel it's the same for Marxists. And I feel that maybe there's it is a, now is a good time to kind of reclaim the the word. So, yeah, that's the first book that came to my mind. It's odd because I've been asked this question before, and it has never been my answer. Actually, I like it. I like it, <laughs> and I like everything that you said. And it's it goes into everything else you said earlier. Yes, and I'm happy you said something you didn't say before. Yeah, I'm so happy about that one, of course. I don't know. It just, it just. No, it's good. It's good. Thank you. And Paula, who has been your salt? Salt, the podcast is about the salt. Who has inspired you? And of course, you can mention more than one person or oh, yes. whatever it is that you will mention. So many people have inspired me and continue to inspire me. I think, well, my mother and the women in my family, my aunts, uh, so her sisters, her side of the family. It hasn't always been easy, but I think they were my first inspiration in terms of what it meant to be a fabulous looking, strong woman who was not, who were not, you know, scared of taking up the space. You know, that, that's what I think I love the most. There are four sisters, my, my mother and, and her sister, and, and they are not, they were not, and they are not afraid to take up that space. And I think they taught me that. So I think they were my first inspiration, my sister as well. And then my comrades, my feminist comrades. And I was mentioning Abir, but there's also Naya Rai, Lina Abu Habib, Ali Awada. You know, I, there are too many to quote them all, but I feel that, yeah, they, they are the ones that keep me going. They are the ones that make me think about things in a very deep way. They... Yeah, you know, like I feel that we sustain and love each other, but we also challenge each other. And we have tried to build solidarity with one another. And yeah, they've definitely been my soul. And along the years, you know, and, and so these are more kind of my militant type of, of crowd. But I think, and also in my professional path, I've also met people who have been my souls. I'm actually thinking of my current supervisor, who's a woman called Christina Zampas, who I, I don't think I've respected someone intellectual integrity the way that I respect hers. And she does, like, she's just a brilliant mind. The way she thinks about international law, you're just like, this is, this is flawless. Like, there's nothing. This is, and I learned so much with her. And she's just someone that is also so kind and so humble. She's like really everyone, anyone's dream boss, if I can put it this way. So she's also part of that tribe of salt, if I can put it this way. There are too many. It's interesting that I'm not able to mention a man as being part of my soul, but of my of my tribe. Um, but uh, yeah, I feel that it's the women who made me. And to whom do you want to pass the salt? Who do you want to inspire? What do you have to say? I do not want to inspire anyone. 
but you're I doing just, that. But I like I feel that that word just to start with, you know, so inspiring. I don't know if I like it or not. Um, I yeah, I don't really. I mean, I I want obviously I want I want to pass something on to my daughters so that I I hope that they grow up to be proud of their mother and obviously to my nieces, you know, to the next generation. But I would like to say as well, you know, I think also my salt is actually the the girls, the, the younger women, um, not just the younger women, the girls on, of my family, but every time I go in, in Switzerland, the, the demonstration, the kind of the, the women's strike is on the 14th of June. It's not the 8th of March, like it is in many other countries for national reasons. The strike is on the 14th of June. And I always go to the demonstration. And and I just saw, like last year, I was just walking. And I just saw these like 15, 16-year-old girls. And they are there. I was just looking at them. And I was like almost crying. I was like, the kids are all right. They are the ones who will atomize the family. They are the ones who are trying different forms of relationship building. They are the ones who are questioning everything. They are the ones who are fearless and fierce. And all I want to do is like, I know they don't need me to protect them, but the mama bear in me just, just wants to, you know, like walk behind them and have their back just because they're, they're incredible. They're just incredible. So I realized that might be the one question that I do I don't want to inspire them. I want to have their back. Amazing. I, I Actually, you reminded me of another podcast episode. It was a Yuli Kim. She's a Japanese lesbian woman. Um, she works uh, yeah, in, in the HR field. And she told me the next generation, they demand. Mm -hmm. They don't negotiate anymore. That's what I want. And that's how it is, period. Yeah. And it's in line with what you just said. Yes. Paula, what is your question for me? <laughs> I asked you tons of questions. Oh, the endless possibilities, Stella. Yeah, you can ask me more. We on won't lose each other. <laughs> oh, on record, what is it that you want to ask? That I want to ask you. I think I want to ask you, how do you do it all? Because, you know, I've, as, as much as, you know, the kind words you said to me, like, I look at you and I'm like, in awe. Because you, you were, we were talking, like you have, Three, four kids, you you work, you have just completed your degree, you do the podcast and all of that. And I think it's incredible. And um, yeah, what sustains you? I don't like this question, how do you do it? But what sustains you to do it all? Yes, I think there are multiple answers to your question. <laughs> One is, of course, you need some kind of support system, like to take First, to make it a very practical answer, because obviously this idea of the superwoman, because I, and I'm happy you didn't use the word and I know that you hate it. Um, <laughs> and so do I, but people would call me very often and they still do a superwoman. And in the past, I would feel some pride, you know, mm -hmm. like many years ago. Mm -hmm. And I realized the system made you feel this pride, you know, and again, it goes also with competition because it puts pressure on other women and, and then it, it put pressure on me and so I want to say I'm not a superwoman and I hate the word for many reasons, but practically speaking, I have a partner with whom we share the chores, we share many things. So yeah, 
And I have his full support. When I told him in 2020, I think I want to quit my job and I want to go back to university and I want to do a master in gender studies. He said, go for it. Do it. Just how do you envision it? Do you still want to keep working? No, I say, I want to quit my job. Okay, how are we going to do it? So having somebody next to me that has my back, that Mm -hmm. is there, that isn't afraid of me, of my evolution, of my development, of me being outspoken, having a big mouth, whatever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And with whom we practically speaking, share our chores. Like when I have a podcast recording, he knows, okay, the kids have to sleep. He puts me the cables. He helps me with the technology. Mm -hmm. Um, My kids know they're quiet. So practically speaking, I have somebody next to me who is walking the path with me. So that, that is one thing. Then inside of me, I have, I think it's something that has been planted in me from my ancestors. I don't know, but I have this strength that has been given to me by my mother, not always in a good way, but I thank her for it and probably came from her mother. And I think it's just the strength that I have inside of me that, yeah, I I keep feeding from it. Mm -hmm. um, If it makes sense. It does. Yeah. And and the other thing is that I'm just extremely passionate about life, passionate about people, passionate. You said it also about people's stories, passionate about doing something. I don't believe that I'm just here for myself, for eating, for partying, for having a good time, shopping, whatever. But I'm here because I I, I want to, yeah, I want to contribute, you know, I want to want to put something, something out there. So this is also something that that drives me. Do I get tired on the way? Obviously, Mm -hmm. lately a lot. Um, Do I have bad days? Yes. Do I doubt myself? Yes, of course. It's it's all part of it, you know. And um, yeah, and just also this community that because I had a very difficult um, relationship with feminism and also with with women in in my past. And feminism for me was something very negative associated Mm -hmm. with white northwestern european women who are very educated who look down on my mother um, yeah. i couldn't identify with it you know and um yeah getting to know what feminism means like finding a home what you said today um finding this love opening this box of love is not just with your partner but it's with your friends it's with your community it's with your comrades it's with your neighbor it's with it's with being in love with justice, you know, not just yeah. being in love with people, but being in love. I'm in love with justice. And I sometimes think, imagine everybody would be in love with justice. How powerful would this be? How this being in love with nature, with Mother Earth, you know, I mean, not just with people, but opening up the concept even more. So I think finding this space and still finding it, still growing in it ha- is also something that just, yeah, gives me a lot of drive. I don't know. Yeah, sustains me as you, you chose that word. So yes, this is these are some of the things that I can say. And my daughter, I mean, my kids in general, but my daughter especially, because of the things that I experienced and the things mm-hmm. other women have experienced and the things that yeah, I don't want her to experience. So yeah, I think having a, a girl child, it's an added layer of responsibility. Yes, absolutely. Yes, thank you, Paula. This has been. Yeah, I really appreciate your time, your honesty. And I always honor a woman at the end of my podcast. And today I actually want to honor you. Oh, um, thank you. With everything that you share 
not just tonight, but what you share with the world, your words, your writings, your fights. Yeah, with everything that you do. And honoring your mom for bringing you to us. <laughs> and your, your dad as well. I mean, he was part of it too. But Very yeah. accessory. Yes. <laughs> Let's keep my mother at the center of this. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Stella. Thank you for, for creating the podcast. Thank you for inviting me to speak on the podcast. It was such a beautiful evening spent with you. Yeah, I can't wait to listen to it and to listen to the others that you will produce and to see where you'll go. Thank you, Barbara. <laughs> Strength of yours. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you to everybody for listening. Of course, I will upload everything about Paula on uh, web my website, uh, my Instagram. And if you've been enjoying this episode, <laughs> share it because and, and follow her. Go read Paula's blog, see what she has to say. And yes, thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Something that is loved is never lost. I'm Stella Sagliari and this is Salt the Podcast.